The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. It's nice to see you tonight. So I've been giving a series of talks on this particular list that the Buddha used to talk about a balanced mind. And it's called the seven factors of awakening. And the way to think about it is when our mind is in a beautiful balance, <clears throat> then it has our, our resiliency. So it's not so likely <clears throat> to be reactive, not so likely to be confused by what's being known. We know this minds this uh, mental balance. We've all happened upon it, maybe not intentionally, but there are moments when the mind just finds that balance to some degree. And in a way, the world appears differently. Our experience appears differently in those moments because we're not immediately confused by our perception or our memory or thought or concept of what's going on. And there's more of a sense that we're in a different world. So when we show up to a different place, we pay attention because we don't know what's going on yet. We don't know where we're at. We don't know what's what. So we stay very sensitive and open. But as soon as we have a sense, like we've been to that restaurant before, been to this house before, had this situation happened to us before, we stop paying attention because, in a sense, we think we know already. So Krishnamurti, some of you have heard of this person, an Indian man, has a very interesting background, and uh, I won't go into that tonight, but he's a well-known spiritual teacher, meditation teacher, I guess you could say, and uh, he had a book called Freedom from the Known. And it's, a, it's more than a book title. It's a very important concept, something to reflect on. You know, thoughts aren't all bad. Some thoughts point us in the direction of how we delude ourselves or point us in the direction of seeing things more directly or more clearly. So freedom from the known is referring to an experience of noticing how limited our experiences due to what we think is happening. So, so we have an idea that this is how it is or this is what's going on and fixating on that idea keeps us from really knowing, really being close, really being wise in that moment. So I ended last week's talk with this comment by Larry Rosenberg and he says that the kalesas, the kalesas are like greed and aversion. The kalesas are brilliant at making us look outside. They keep us constantly occupied so we never look into our hearts. So it's like we only see the surface and we're transfixed by the surface of our lives, the story or the narration or this consensual reality. 
and we never stop, we never slow down or train the mind to notice more directly what's going on. So in mindfulness practice, that's what we're doing. First, we're just discovering that it's possible. You know, just a moment of mindfulness is discovering that, oh, this moment, instead of thinking, oh, I'm Mark and I'm at Comic Con giving a talk, actually, a more direct seeing of this moment is seeing the experience of the body and the mind. So seeing or knowing the experience of the body simply means knowing the five physical senses. So seeing is like this, not being confused by my perception of what's being seen, my memory of what's being seen, or you guys, but just seeing, just hearing, just smelling, tasting, just touching. And then the mind. Well, what is the mind? We've had a mind for a long time now, but have we used the mind to know the mind? So this is the first step in investigation, is just understanding that any moment of experience is simply mind and body being known. It's never more complicated than that. The most amazing moment of your life, the most boring moment of your life, has simply been mind and body being known. That's as much as we can say. There were the five physical senses being known and thoughts or mental stuff being known. That's it. So investigation, the second quality of these seven factors of awakening, it's really about that cutting through. Joko Bakker, a well-known Zen teacher, says, our interest in reality is extremely low. We want to think. We want to worry through all of our preoccupations. We want to figure life out. And so before we know it, We've forgotten all about this moment, and we've drifted off into thinking about something. Our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our child, our boss, our current fear, off we go. There is nothing sinful about fantasizing except that when we're lost in that, we've lost something else. When we're lost in thought, when we're dreaming, what have we lost? We've lost reality. Our life has escaped us. And the thing is, we notice this about other people. We just don't notice it about ourselves, right? Don't we notice sometimes our friends, our colleagues, and we just have a sense they're just totally lost in their thoughts, lost in their particular drama. But it doesn't occur to us that that thought itself is a drama, you know? That that's my friend who's lost in a drama. That's another drama. Maybe it's not you know, so unskillful as that drama that that friend is lost or caught up in. Even even sort of thinking about meditation it can be a drama. So we want to discover that it's possible to have a different relationship with experience. And it's interesting in the, in the text, from uh, the time of the Buddha, the talks and commentary from the time of the Buddha, they describe what the cause of this factor, what causes the wholesome factor of investigation to arise in the mind. So that's sort of an interesting question. I mean, it's relevant. We want to know what helps investigation to arise. And this is what uh, Saida Upandita, a well-known Burmese 
meditation teacher, Buddhist monk, says in his book, In This Very Life, Spontaneous insight is the cause of investigation. We might be interested in knowing how we can get this factor of investigation to arise. According to the Buddha, there is only one cause of it. There must be a spontaneous insight, a direct perception. To realize such an insight, you must activate mindfulness. You must be aware in a penetrative manner of whatever arises. When the mind can gain insight into the true nature of phenomena, this accomplishment requires wise attention, appropriate attention. You can direct the mind toward the object mindfully. Then you will have that first insight or direct perception. The factor of investigation arises, and because of it, further insights will naturally will follow naturally in order as a child progresses from kindergarten through high school and college and finally graduates. So it's interesting how we can't go directly to investigation because we'll inevitably think about our thinking, which is not investigation. So real investigation arises when we stumble upon a moment of true mindfulness, or as Sayada Upandita says, direct perception. So we're awakening in a sense. We're awakening to the breath coming in. And in that moment, free of our ideas of that, I'm here doing breathing meditation. And with that moment of direct perception, it's like we've opened a door to a new world and naturally, without anybody trying to do anything, we're interested because we're in a different place. We're aware of the breath in a way we're not normally aware of the breath. Almost always we're confused or deluded by our thoughts about the breath or about the body or about whatever is going on for us. I'm sure you notice that just in observing the breath. It's really hard to go beyond the commentary and the thoughts and the doubts and whatever else is going on in the mind. So this is why, you know, I talked earlier in the earlier uh, talks on the seven factors, how in a sense it's not a sequential or a linear model, but it's also useful to think about it as a linear model. It works both ways. So as a linear model, mindfulness comes first. A moment of mindfulness then leads to the possibility of a moment of, of investigation. Mindfulness, remember, if if you've been coming for the last month or so, I said uh, one way to think about mindfulness is mindfulness is a not forgetting that this is how it is. So it's a a remembering, an ongoing remembering, or a moment at least, of remembering that this is how it is. And so what I mean by this is how it is, I mean that direct perception. So when, when I say this is how it is, whether I'm opening to a body state or a mind state, it's an observation or a connection with that free of the influence of the thought. Now, there may be thoughts. We can be mindful of a thought, but then in that moment of being mindful of a thought, we're not deluded or confused by the content of the thought. So we're seeing the thought as a mental activity independent of what the particular content of the thought is. Just like if we see a shooting star, 
You know, we can just see it as a shooting star. We don't know anything about that shooting star. We just know something's moving through space. Well, it's a little bit like that with a thought. Well, there's just this activity, this mental activity of a thought moving through. It has a particular force or texture, maybe. But we're not confused by the content. And this can be true of a physical experience or a mental experience. So we have a moment of mindfulness of not forgetting, oh, this, it's just this. And because that's a different way of perceiving, different way of being, a more direct, immediate way of being in our lives, then naturally investigation arises. A wholesome sense of awe or interest arises in the mind. And this sets in motion the possibility of some continuity, like a moment of mindfulness and then interest or investigation can be what leads to the next moment of seeing clearly, of not getting caught up in our reactivity, our reactions rather, and our thoughts. And then we have a couple moments of mindfulness, a couple moments of just receiving the experience as it actually is. And then the next factor begins to arise, which is energy. Making this effort to be continuous energizes the mind. And I'll talk more about that beginning next week when we look at the third factor, which is energy. So in this way, investigation is uh, sort of like a, a spontaneous or an, an ignition. Something ignites. When the conditions are right, something arises, something ignites. It just happens this way in the mind. And Santikaro, somebody who comes here to teach from time to time, he talks about how his teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, often, he, he was a scholar monk, um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, Thai, well-known Thai Buddhist monk and scholar. And so he used his mind a lot. He was very philosophical and intellectual. And he talked about how this can be useful to some degree in developing this quality of investigation. Right? Just like even that first moment of remembering this is how it is, we could have a lot of thoughts, very useful thoughts, like, oh, I'm just caught up in my thoughts. Now, that's a very useful thought to have arise in our mind. Oh, I'm just caught up in my thoughts. I'm just spinning. Right? What's really going on? Those are all very useful thoughts to have. What's really going on? Where is this, where is this being felt? How is this? How is it that this is arising? What's supporting this? Why am I rushing? What's really going on? Why is there irritation? Why is there excitement? What's going on now? What else is being known here? So it's useful. Having thoughts are useful. Or having, you know, reflecting on what I said earlier about it's only mind and body. Right? So you could, you could think and you could even have a very useful conversation with a friend about that. The Buddha says that it's just mind and body. And that... One of the basic insights human beings have when they start paying close attention 
to experience is they have an insight called understanding that it's just mind and body, which is a deconstruction of our story about our life. And instead saying it's just mind being known and body, the five physical senses being known. That's it. Now, we could have an endless conversation about that and never practice. But if we have a conversation or reflect on that and it leads to practice, then that's quite useful. So I don't mean to imply that investigation doesn't involve thoughts. But if it does involve thoughts, all the thoughts are leading toward a direct perception, a direct way of being or, or practice, what we call in the Buddhist tradition, practicing. If you hang around common ground long enough, you'll get sick of that word because we use that word all the time, you know, about practice. How's your practice going? This is a practice center. We come together to practice, to support each other's practice. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, using these models, using these ancient teachings, using the support we get from each other to set in motion to increase the probability of moments of practice where we're actually moving beyond the concept into a more direct way of being, relating with experience. And noticing if we're there and we understand what investigation is, well, notice it arising. Interest arises naturally with a direct perception of things as they are. Because investigation is very much like insight. The, the word we use, the Vipassana is the Pali word. We use the word insight often or clear seeing. So when we're investigating, it naturally leads to seeing things or understanding things that aren't yet understood. You know, even if you've been around children, it's clear that children love to learn. You don't need to teach children to like to learn. Children like to learn. Human beings like to learn. The trouble is, we think we know what they should be learning, or we're not so interested in them learning, we're more interested in controlling their behavior and keeping them in their seats. And so, you know, we think we get confused about what learning actually is. But if you just leave kids alone, they start learning like how to get adults to do what they want. <laughs> so one of the characteristics of investigation is it dispels darkness. The function is to uh, kind of turn the light on in our life. So in a way, we're going through life with blinders, or maybe more exact, we're going through life with a, a particular narration. We're sort of distant from what's really going on. It's like we're eating the meal by reading the menu instead of actually eating the meal. Or we're living a human life by telling us ourselves a story about a human life, but not really being there in the life that, that is happening. So we turn the light on, and what we discover is a sensitivity that's natural 
but we're not often aware of. We sort of have not valued that sensitivity. I think partly we don't value the sensitivity because it's we're, we experience the ups and downs of life more intensely. So we distance ourselves from our, our sensitivity, the natural sensitivity of the mind. Like I was suggesting with the concept of mindfulness, not forgetting that this is how it is. So that suggests that the mind or the heart is naturally sensitive. It's like, do you have to make any effort to hear my voice now? The only effort we have to make is to not get distracted. But as long as the mind isn't distracted, hearing just happens. It's the same with the sensations in the body. As long as you're not distracted, you don't need to make any effort to feel what you're feeling in your body or to hear the sounds or to smell. The mind, heart, whatever you want to call it, is naturally sensitive. At the core, I mean, if we want to say, if we want to define what a human existence is, it is this sensitivity. That's what it is. And we dull that, we remove ourselves from the sensitivity by being in our thoughts. Now, we're sensitive to our thoughts. You know, when I have a, a, a particular thought or a particular memory, it comes often with a punch, a feeling. But I'm not paying attention to the feeling. What are we doing? We're paying attention to the content of the thought. So we're always, or almost always, or often, removing ourselves from this natural sensitivity and getting lost in content, in the storyline of our lives, of what's happening, of what we think is going on, and what's important or what's not important, or what should be done or what shouldn't be done. So this, again, is just when we realize this world of sensitivity, it might feel a little overwhelming. In a way, this is the great barrier to investigation, is we might find we don't like being sensitive because we feel a little bit exposed, out of control. You know, being a sensitive human being means that, so that means, when I say sensitive human being, I mean being a human being that's not distracted. It means we're completely vulnerable to whatever goes on. I'm completely vulnerable. When I'm not distracted, I'm completely vulnerable to whatever memory arises in my mind, whatever despicable or beautiful thought comes in, whatever amazing fantasy arises. I'm completely vulnerable to whatever happens around me, seeing dog poop on the sidewalk or seeing a beautiful flower. or Whatever I experience, whatever I smell, taste, has a real, it, it impinges because we're sensitive. And that sensitivity, when we're sensitive, we're like exposed. It's raw, but we're also alive. And this is it's like we have a choice. We can deaden ourselves by living inside of our thoughts about what's going on. Or we can move in the direction of sensitivity where we feel quite alive, but not so much in control. And so this movement, you know, mindfulness, investigation, then it goes to energy. You get a sense of why it goes to energy next, because 
there is this experience of being alive as we begin to have some continuity. This investigation gives us some continuity in this world of things as they are. And we feel alive. And we the next step after energy is rapture. We start to feel joy. Basically, this is the freedom from the known that Krishnamurti was talking about. We're not so much trapped in my idea of who Mark is. And that experience of freedom is joy, is rapture. And we'll get to those in the weeks ahead. So, um, the Buddha was often very good at talking very specifically about what supports factors, positive and negative factors, and what helps us, what sort of gets in the way. So, in terms of, uh, of investigation, I told you already that they talk about a moment of insight is what supports the arising of investigation. And then there are seven more ways to develop investigation that are talked about. And the first one is asking questions. Sayadu Pandita says, Westerners are especially good at this one. We start a lot of Westerners. In a way, this I think what this means is not being content with the superficial, not being content with... Uh, with this idea that we think we know, but challenging that a little bit. So I think earlier, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about humility as part of this practice, or the don't know mind. So one one way to do that, just in our formal and informal practice, is just to ask the ask the question, what? As in, what else is being known here, or what else can be known here? So not to be content with, well, it's just the body. But what? What is being known? To be clear about what's being known. What else is being known? Because in a way, there is no limit to how close or how subtle the attention can be. But it has to be invited. Because what we tend to do is hang back. Oh, yeah, okay, I get this. And then we stop practicing because it's like, oh, well, this is going on. Now I know what's going on, so why do I have to look? Why do I need to be interested? Because I know what's going on. So by asking questions in our practice in, a, in an appropriate way, we can. it's like ultimately we don't need to ask questions. But as long as we're being influenced by bad habits, like the habit of complacency, in our meditation practice, then it's good to ask questions. What? What's really happening now? What's really being known now? And this is also true just in terms of clarifying your practice. You know, we usually have time at the end of uh, the talks for people to bring up questions or other opportunities for people to ask questions of me or find other senior people, people who have more experience than you to ask questions. 
And it's amazing how shy we are about this. You know, partly it's because meditation is a personal thing and it's, it can be, uh, it can feel a little, little intimidating to ask a question about your mind or about what you're seeing or knowing in your mind. But it can be quite useful to ask questions about how you're practicing, about what you're seeing, how you're working with what you're seeing. The next supporting um, practice for investigation is cleanliness, both inside, meaning just the clean body, but also the environment around you. And this is interesting. If you go, I think it's generally true, not, not always true, but generally true, you know, people try to keep meditative spaces uncluttered and clean. And if you go uh, spend some time with monks and nuns, so much of the rules that they have to follow, the traditional rules for the monks and nuns, are about just taking care of things, taking care of the bowl, taking care of the robes, taking care of your living space, your sleeping space, taking care of the requisites that you have and being really meticulous about it, making it all practice so that the whole life has a, a real sense of orderliness, clarity. I, uh, when I was in Thailand practicing at a monastery, the day before I left, I did a little pilgrimage around the area with uh, a few local Thai people that brought me along. And we went to the different places, and we went to Ajahn Mun's museum and where his ashes and his relics are kept and his uh, requisites. You know, the monks have bowls and they have some robes and they have a few other items that they're allowed to have, but very few possessions. But when I, you know, was in that room, it's, a, it's, it's like a shrine room. It has some of the relics. The relics are just the leftover fragments when they cremate the body and all of his possessions, you know, and just walking around looking at his possessions, they had a, a palatable energy about of meticulousness. I mean, just the whole energy at the, in general at the monastery and then it's specifically in that room, it just felt so strongly of mindfulness and clarity. And, and it was, it seemed to be, you know, I. Maybe it was my imagination, but it seemed so strongly evident just in looking at his requisites. There was something about them that they were so well cared for. And they were very simple things, you know, like twigs that they use to clean their teeth. You know, they don't use toothbrushes. They have a piece of wood that works pretty well to scrape against the teeth and clean them. And, you know, a little bag to keep, I don't know what he even had in it. And, you know, just little... Uh, knickknacks to keep the person alive, to keep himself alive, to take care of his needs. But just, you could just tell. And you know how that is, like if you see somebody's possessions that aren't well taken care of, it has a certain energy. You know, you go and somebody, somebody picks you up in their car, and the car just has a, a very distinct feeling like nobody is taking care of this. <laughs> and you go in another place, whatever it is, a house or a car, that's being taken care of, and it has a nice feeling. That feeling of clarity uh, is really being supported in the mind by just being in that orderly place. 
So we can, this is just another way to support investigation is to take care of our body, you know, to clip our nails when they need to be clipped and to clean the body when it needs to be cleaned and to take care of the hair and, you know, all these things that can feel like such a burden. But actually avoiding the work of keeping our environment and our body together just makes things heavier. We think we'll get some relief by not taking care of it, but it just makes it worse. All of the fogginess that we'd like to be free from just gets worse the more we ignore those things. So that's the second. The third is a balanced mind. And here they're talking specifically about balancing wisdom and faith and energy and concentration. And this is a traditional... Uh, an important part in the Buddhist teachings about balancing wisdom with faith. You know, if you have too much faith and not enough wisdom, you tend to get swept away by devotional energy. And that gets in the way of investigation. But if you have too much of the wisdom factor and not enough faith, it tends to lead to a kind of arrogance and over-dependence on your views. And that doesn't help with investigation either. It's sort of a rigidity in the mind. So you need a balance between faith, kind of devotional energy, and wisdom. This more um, like uh, penetrative quality of the mind, just seeing things as they are. And then energy and concentration too. Too much energy, if it's out of balance with concentration, is not useful because it leads to restlessness. Too much concentration relative to the energy leads to sleepiness. We get the mind gets quieter and quieter and quieter and goes unconscious. So the concentration needs to be balanced with energy, energy balanced with concentration, and faith and wisdom need to be balanced. So this is another way to take care of the mind. It's just to look at those two balances. How's the wisdom faith balance going? How's the energy concentration balance going? both generally in our lives, but then specifically in our meditation, this is something we can look at. And then the fourth and fifth supporting things for uh, investigation, avoiding fools, making friends with the wise. <laughs> it's a little bit like having a messy car. You know, if we live with people who don't value uh, clarity, who don't value mindfulness, it has an effect. If we, if all we're doing is hanging around people who are very unmindful, heedful, then it's you know we have to we have to realize how we're all sympathetically vibrating together. So if we're around a bunch of people who are vibrating this way, it's very hard not to start vibrating like them. And if we're hanging around a bunch of really wise, loving people. Fortunately, it works that way too. We start to vibrate like them. They tend to bring out our good qualities, reinforce our good qualities. So this is true with investigation. Number six is reflection on profound truth, or as another teacher said, called it reflecting profoundly. So this means reflecting on themes that lift the hair at the back of your neck because that really energizes us in a good way and it moves us into humility 
which is really good for investigation. So what are those themes? I mean, it's different for different people. It might be reflecting on impermanence. Like, this body will die. That's a known. When it will die, I don't know. But that it will die is absolute. I have no evidence to suggest that this body won't die. And just to reflect on that mystery, you know, sure, there's lots of speculation about what happens at death. But we have no direct reports, or I don't. Right? So it's a real mystery for all of us. I mean, I don't care how much you say you believe this is going to happen. The fact is, it's a belief we don't really know. So that kind of, for some people, will get the hair, you know, like, oh. Or one of uh, the particular themes in Buddhism that's used a lot is reflecting on conditionality. How everything arises and ceases according to causes and conditions. Everything, including the nature of our mind, the activity of our mind. Everything is unfolding lawfully. And this unfolding is this very intricate web of causes and conditioning. Nothing, nothing at all stands outside of this web of conditionality. There's no center to this web of causes and conditions. So we can reflect on conditionality, causes and conditions. And that also can, in a sense, blow the mind, quiet the mind. Because it's such a mystery that nature, all things, including the mind, including the sense of being a self, even that thought, even that feeling, I'm here and you're there, that also is nature. It's also a conditional activity. It just doesn't happen. It's not like Mark is here and then everything else is conditional. But this activity that we call Mark or whatever, Patty or whomever, that also is just causes and conditions. And the causes and conditions are all interacting with each other. It's not like somehow we can keep our unfolding processes process independent of all the other unfolding processes. They're all kind of together. So we can reflect on that. So this is what the Buddha means by reflecting profoundly. Finding what we call a Dharma theme. A theme that turns the mind towards truth, towards things as they are, and reflecting on it. So using thought in a way that keeps turning the mind toward experience, towards the mystery, meaning the, mind, uh, the experience free of concept. That's really what mystery is. It's, it's an experience that doesn't have an, a story that kind of captures it or holds it. And then the seventh supporting factor for investigation is total commitment. This is what uh, <coughs> Saida Upandita says. The last important support for the arising of investigation is total commitment to cultivating this factor of enlightenment. One should always have the inclination toward investigation, toward direct intuitive insight. Remember that it is not necessary to rationalize or intellectualize your experiences. Just practice meditation so that you can gain a first-hand experience of your own mind and body. And as I've been talking about for the last six weeks or so, 
The Buddha talks so much about commitment or wholeheartedness, heedfulness. I think I'll leave it here so that we have time to hear from one another. Maybe you have some thoughts you'd like to share with the group from your own practice or questions about your practice, questions about investigation. And next week I'll begin to talk about energy. And then uh, for much of November and December, I'll be in and out on retreat for uh, several weeks. So other people will be uh, continuing this series of talks on the seven factors of awakening. So that's just a heads up. But I'll be here next week. So what comes to mind about these fa- this factor of awakening? What experience do you have with investigation or what seems to get in the way of investigation for you? Mm-hmm. Maria? Yeah. getting interested in lethargy. Really. That's true. Instead of thinking of it as something in the way, but to actually, mm-hmm. like, what is that? What is the experience of lethargy? It might be energizing just to be interested in it. Yeah. What else comes to mind? So this is what, what I meant, remember I was talking about becoming a sensitive being, like or remembering, rediscovering the natural sensitivity of the mind. And the thing about denial or numbness is it's unpleasant. It's actually really unpleasant. So as we become sensitive, as we move in the direction of, of investigation, wholesome investigation, 
you know, we have a moment of mindfulness or moments of mindfulness and, and we're feeling the effect of those decades of practicing denial and the numbness that has resulted, we can get fooled. We think, oh, okay, so now there's some mindfulness, there's some sensitivity, and what we're sensing with the sensitivity is numbness. And we'll get fooled thinking, oh, there's nothing here. But actually, this is, this is something very much to wake up to, very useful to wake up to. But because it's not a distinct thing, it's more of a pervasive feeling when we're numb, it doesn't necessarily have a clear center. Oh, here is the center of the numbness. Here is the center of the denial. But it is absolutely something that can be seen, be woken up to. And it's very useful to wake up to that. But it's not so easy. It's, it's, uh often leads to doubt, like doubt about our meditation practice. Oh, I'm not doing it right because there's nothing here. It seems so nondescript. It seems so bland. And then all of a sudden, one day, if you stick with your practice, one day, it like a light will go off and go, oh, this is numbness. And it's like this. It just like comes into view. Something you've been staring at for months in your meditation practice just comes into view. And oh, it's numbness. But we were missing it because it just looked like the background of my mind. It became so much a part of what I just thought was me. And then all of a sudden I realized, no, numbness is something arising due to causes and conditions, and it's like this. So it takes a, this is where faith comes in, to have faith that if we keep knocking on the door, showing up with our practice, uh, remembering this is how it is, you know, that basic movement of mindfulness, and then some continuity or some con- like uh, a power of investigation or real interest. Now, driven at first by faith, you know, maybe even a little blind faith, like, well, is there something here? Is there something to wake up here, to here? And this is also where some useful questioning can happen, like to ask, is it pleasant or unpleasant? Oh, it's unpleasant. What is unpleasant? What is it in this moment that's unpleasant? That might help bring the numbness into view. Like we know it's an oppressive state or an unpleasant state that's happening. But it has like nothing to see, nothing to look at. But then we can really look at the unpleasantness of it and that can really bring it into view. Perseverance, especially with things like numbness. The path of freedom is through all of that denial and numbness. Basically, it's through whatever we've been, whatever has been created to the lack of mindfulness over the years. So we have to go through those doors. Other thoughts people have? Great. experience or perception, automatically I judge it. And obviously that completely shuts down the possibility for investigation. Yeah, but but that door can open just as fast as it can shut down, it can reopen. So simply being in that moment, just being interested in the judging can open right back up. 
So then you then you can learn something really important, like how this leads to this, and then that, and then the, the pain of the judging leads to a moment of mindfulness. Oh, judging, it's like this. So it is true that things can close down very quickly, but it, it works the other way too. So we don't want to be depressed by that fact that they can, it can close down. We can go from being very clear, very insightful, to be very diluted in no time. <laughs> but we can go from being very diluted to bear, being very awake in no time too. Though the trouble is, when we're really deluded, we don't think that being a moment of being very awake is nearby. Part of the experience of being deluded, being caught up in thought, is that you know I got to deal with all of this. I got to I got to clear the mind of all of this stuff before I can get back to mindfulness. But actually, all we have to do is understand. Oh, this is how it is. That is the only thing in the way of a moment of mindfulness. This understanding. Oh, it's like this now. Mind on a mind entangled is like this. Hmm? Steve? I, I, when you were talking about investigating the thing, I thought about another word was uh, refining, refining attraction. Kind of like that I've noticed that it's uh, being attracted to something and kind of judging what it is, and we're attracted to things, and I, I just feel like that. In myself, is that nothing I'm attracted to is wrong. I mean, I don't go towards everything I'm attracted to, but like discovering something that's blocking mindfulness and then refining it so that become, like you said, like becoming attracted to focusing on that. And um, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, but that. that um, and the other one was, uh, was that um, we talked about cleaning. Uh, cleanliness or having things straight and orderly. And then the next thing was about relationships. And uh, it felt like that cleanliness and orderliness in relationships, kind of those two kind of blended together because uh, I can't always be around uh, people who are wise and, and wholesome for whatever reason, work, family, um, even some wise people aren't always wise. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, Yeah, thanks for your comments. And I think your first comment was a really useful about this is this is how I understood it at least about discovering that we really have to trust the quality of attention to follow its own nose. Like it knows what it wants to pay attention to. So in the beginning, you know, we might be more directive, but we want to move in the direction of just, especially in terms of developing investigation, to let the attention pay attention to what it wants to pay attention to. So basically to investigate, to see clearly, but we don't have to choose what we're seeing clearly. The mind will naturally go to what's predominant, and we just let it go there. The key is to see it clearly. It doesn't matter what we wake up to. Just keep waking up to whatever the mind is bringing into focus and be interested in that. 
and uh, not to second guess or judge. Like now it's a despicable thought. No, I shouldn't be waking up to that. But that's what's going on. There's this thought, you know, and it's like this. It's just a thought. Mm-hmm. I forgot your name. Nate. Yeah. Basically, the thoughts are only useful if they're turning the mind toward direct perception, toward a moment of mindfulness. So we don't need any, we don't need to be um, analyzing or creating models. Now, that a little of that after the sit or before the sit or you come here, you know, that's what we're doing now. We're working on the level of concept and models and thought. But in terms of our practice, it doesn't basically very little. And the thoughts that we do use are thoughts that are turning us back to what we call mindfulness practice or more a direct relationship to the experience, a nonverbal way of relating. But of course, we have to have a lot of patience because we've been trained to think a lot, you know. And so we're constantly thinking about our lives. So you can just take that as an object too. So when you notice that, just oh, thinking. So now, when you do, when you have that moment of awareness of thinking, you're not looking at the content of those particular thoughts, but that thinking is happening, just the activity of thinking. Maybe time for one more thought, if anybody has that last comment. Well, let's leave it here then. We'll just take a moment, let go of the words, take a couple breaths together. And feeling some gratitude that we can be here together. It's pretty rare that people get together to talk about the heart and mind in this way. So we can be grateful for all the people that have made this possible, people who practiced in the past and passed on what they've learned, you know, the people who make the center possible and who allow us to get here. And we can commit to doing the best we can to develop this path of awakening, of mindfulness, for the benefit of all beings. So not just for our own well-being, but as a way of protecting and taking care of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering and free from the causes of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.